Hey everyone, this is John. Before we begin this episode, I want to acknowledge that we recorded this on July 21st, 2021, and on July 24th, 2021, Jackie Mason of Caddyshack 2 passed away at age 93. And I bring this up now because we did not know to acknowledge this when we recorded it because it hadn't yet happened. And um, this is uh, our pour one out for Jackie Mason, uh, who truly made a, a big impact on the comedy scene. And uh, this is for Jackie, if you're listening, if they have podcasts, wherever you are. If you haven't gotten into heaven, I wish you one of the following. If you're in hell, I hope it's at least a dry heat. If you're up in the stars, you're surely on Orion's borscht belt. And if you're reincarnated, I hope you come back as a lady's bicycle seat. And on that note, here's our episode on Caddyshack. Critic Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times said that this movie never finds a consistent comic note of its own, but it plays host to all sorts of approaches from its stars, who sometimes hardly seem to be occupying the same movie. Hindustan Times critic Anupama Chopra said, I love the madness in this film. It celebrates the triumph of the underdogs, the eccentrics, and even the downright dangerous. And New York Times critic Karen James called its sequel, the kind of film that sends careers spiraling downward. On this episode of Ruined Childhoods, we decide the fate of Caddyshack. Which one will it be? It's the Ruined Childhoof Podcast. Greetings, Starfighters. Dan, I thought that you were going to do like a little bit of a Carl voice or something. Greetings, Starfighters. I was actually going to, I would, so I was, I was, it was a, greeting Starfighters. How to like a fresca. <laughs> I, I, I could, I could go there. We could, I could, um, you know, greetings, caddies. <laughs> there are so many different characters and oh, actors. Oh, what here do you we got? go. What do you got? Greetings, Fonz and Noons. Greetings, Fonz and Noons. Wonderful. This is Ruined Childhoods, uh, your favorite podcast that uh, talks about cult and classic movies, uh, of, of which this is kind of both. Um, and, and we talk about what could possibly happen with these movies if we kind of brought them back now. And uh, on this episode, we're talking Caddyshack. Yeah, I'm really... Really uh, excited to talk about Caddyshack and Caddyshack 2. And uh, we, we've also got a, a special treat. Uh, I had the opportunity to interview Chris Nashawadi, who uh, film critic, uh, Entertainment Weekly, Esquire, Vogue, Sports Illustrated. Um, and he wrote the book, Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella That's Story. Right. Uh, so I... Uh, had the opportunity to chat with him, had a great conversation. Uh, and his book is uh, fascinating. If you've ever seen Caddyshack, you, you have to imagine that the stories behind the movie are perhaps more outlandish than the movie itself, right. which is hard to believe. And I think that for anybody who is familiar with kind of that 
style of humor that even though Caddyshack was not a National Lampoon movie, kind of like the National Lampoon system, um, because this movie came about because of the success of Animal House, uh, you should definitely watch, if you haven't already, um, on Netflix, A Feudal and Stupid Gesture, which is directed by David Wayne, which is a telling of the story of National Lampoon and Animal House and Caddyshack and Doug, Doug Kenny, who uh, kind of was the mastermind behind him. it all. Yeah, Will Forte is so good as as Doug Kenny. And um, then there's also well, yeah. uh, Drunk Stoned Brilliant Dead. Is that the yes. documentary? Yeah, the Drunk documentary. Drunk Stoned Brilliant Dead. Which is a fantastic yep. documentary about... National Lampoon and Doug Kenny, and it, it touches on Caddyshack just a little bit. Yeah, it's mostly focused on the you know how the Harvard Lampoon became the national the National Lampoon, and how Doug Kenny and Henry Beard yeah. um, kind of spear spearheaded that, and they were you know just kind of these two out there guys. It like you know in the night in the sixties when yeah. there was a, you know things were were really changing, and uh, comedy was one of those things that uh, you know that that really changed um, you know through the 1970s with you know, with Mel Brooks right and um you know and then and then Animal House um but yeah and it was funny yeah, what's, what's kind of funny about the Caddyshack movies is that it's there's kind of this crossover of like borscht belt comedy especially when we're talking about like Jackie Mason and Caddyshack 2 and you know the legacy comic like Rodney Dangerfield bringing in kind of ushering in like this new style of comedy more so in the first one than the second one with people like Chevy Chase and Bill Murray. Uh, second one, you got Dan Aykroyd, but he, he had already been established by that point. Right. Yeah. And uh, it, it, I mean, we'll get more in into the movies themselves, um, but the just kind of the off the wall nature. And it's funny because when I first saw Caddyshack, uh, I, I don't remember when that was, I'm guessing right. at some point in high school, uh, I must've rented it or, or something. Uh, definitely saw Caddyshack two before Caddyshack one. When I was rewatching Caddyshack two recently, which by the way, they're both currently as we're recording this streaming on Hulu, I can't say what it's going to be like when this episode comes out because we're recording this in a bit a bit in advance. But yeah, I mean, when I was watching Caddyshack 2, I was like, oh my God, so much of this is so familiar to me. Like there's so many things from this that like I kind of forgot were from this that are burned in my brain that mm. I think about a lot. And it's like, oh yeah, and they're from this movie that's generally thought of as being like this terrible movie. But oh, the worst, the worst sequel in a world of Speed 2 and Batman and Robin. This is considered the worst sequel, by and large, considered the, the worst sequel ever made. On the other hand, it's also m arguably more coherent. Yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, which the, the making of. So uh, when I first saw Caddyshack. And I've I've felt this way ever since i've grown to appreciate parts of it more but i i felt like i'm like 
this is so disjointed and yeah. all over the place. And it's like, it's start, the movie starts and I know you'll, you'll do the synopsis, but it kind of like starts with one focus. And then next thing yeah. you know, other things are, are, are happening and you, you're dealing with other characters and there's things that are funny, but they're not necessarily connected to any type of, central plot right and there's a lot of like fades to black with like no connective tissue to the next scene and it's just like they didn't know how to like end a scene and go to a new one and (laughs) you know and it's like this was harold ramus's first time directing like was learning on the job and also it's like you're on a set with people who are like head to toe filled with cocaine and you know it's like everybody just thinks that they're you know creating something but they're forgetting the essentials of filmmaking well and uh if if i may uh, may. i'm gonna i'm gonna run through just some of the backstory and i i don't want to repeat anything that um i know that's gonna be tough that we talk about yeah um but you know having already uh interviewed Chris, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty fresh in my mind what we spoke about. So just to give you a little backstory here about Caddyshack, it was, uh, it was one of the, the first movies, uh, produced by Orion Pictures, which was started by Mike Metavoy. And I think if you're a child of the eighties and if you're like a movie kid like us, you have a fondness for just the Orion logo when you at see the beginning those stars, of the movie. UHF. Bill and Ted. Yeah. Uh, you know, every and Caddyshack, yeah, it's just to the uh, you know, the chanting of Kenny Loggins. And so um and John Peters, the pr- producer John Peters was signed to a deal. And John Peters was pretty much just like one of the most successful bullshit artists ever. And it was just like he knew he he was dating Barbara Streisand. Oh, and okay. he parlayed that into so much. Wow. Um, and so meanwhile, you have Animal House being released in 1979 and it becomes the highest grossing comedy of all time. And all of a sudden, Doug Kenny and Harold Ramis are are hot and everyone wants to work with them. Everyone, every studio in town wants to have the next Animal House. And it it, it sets the it, and also like John Landis, who directed right. Animal House, ended up like kind of being given and taking a lot of the creative credit Mm. for it, which like Doug Kenny, which I mean, yeah, you got to watch drunk, brilliant stone dead and uh, stupid stone gesture. Yeah. Yes. And they're like, you know, they're companion pieces, but to really under understand and also to read um, the book about Caddyshack, which goes into a lot of the Doug Kenny backstory. But um, so there was kind of this, um, you know, like split up a splintering of of forces from Animal House, and you had like John Landis and and John Belushi going on to do uh, Blues Brothers, right? And then you had yeah Doug Kenny and and Harold Ramis doing uh doing Caddyshack, and they they had a meeting with John Peters, and uh the idea had actually been something that they're. Uh, that Brian Doyle Murray. Yeah. And it's interesting because in 
a futile and stupid gesture, it plays it as if Doug Kenny is just like, you know, in a funk and needs to do something and then just starts writing Caddyshack. But no, this is Caddyshack is very much the, uh, you know, the seed of it is the brainchild of Brian Doyle Murray, who, along with his brothers, the uh, the famous acting Murray brothers, uh, they, you know, they caddied when they were kids. And, you know, they had a show like a reality show on Comedy Central about golf. And, you know, it, it's very much part of their DNA. So, yeah, this star- I mean, it started autobiographical, you know, our Irish family with a lot of kids. Yeah. Um, and it that's how it started. And it would and basically as they were as they were making the film and they brought in this was Rodney Dangerfield's first movie. Rodney Dangerfield had been on the comedy scene for a while, but like had kind of changed his shtick uh-huh. and had done all these TV specials and had gotten huge yeah. and his comedy albums were huge and his appetite for cocaine and weed were huge and uh so they you don't so, get those bug eyes just sitting around doing nothing yeah yeah you don't pull at your collar nonstop yeah. because you're not on cocaine uh so, but yeah so they bring in and they so because they were like they have the caddies and that was like the focus of the story was going to be um the Danny the Noonan and company. Yeah. Well, Danny, a love triangle between Danny Noonan, uh, Denunzio and, and Maggie, mm-hmm. uh, who, who's played by Sarah Holcomb, who also played the mayor's daughter in animal house. Right. And, uh, and then like left acting. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, like this, the caddy caddyshack did not do a lot of people. No, a lot of so in her case, you know, this set was just cocaine everywhere and it sparked her, you know, reliance on drugs and she just couldn't be part of this business anymore. Uh, you know, it kind of just ruined her. And, yeah. uh, you know, as they say in uh, Drunk Stone Brilliant Dead, you know, this was a time when they didn't really know that cocaine was that bad for you. And right. it was just something that you did to keep you going. And mm-hmm. uh, boy, did they do a lot of it. Yeah, they did. They did. And uh, and then they would get on the set and they would they would improvise because Harold Ramis never made a movie before right. and had come up through Second City doing improv and. You know, Chevy Chase was was an improviser and like none of Bill Murray's scenes are even in the script. (laughs) No. And, you know, sure. Michael O'Keefe, who plays Danny, is great. And and Scott Columbia, who's uh, Denunzio, like he's great and everything. But they're not going to be the names that bring people into the theater. You know, this is just after uh, just a few years after Saturday Night Live had started and Bill Murray and Chevy Chase were, you know, big draws. Rodney Dangerfield, of course, was a big draw. So, of of course, you're going to get a lot of people who are interested in seeing those guys do their thing. So right. why not let them just kind of go? Right. 
Exactly. Um, and it was funny because they had no idea when Bill Murray was going to, they had Bill Murray contracted for six days, but they had no idea when he was going to show up. And apparently one night he just kind of like showed up at dinner. No one, um, there's a story in the, in the book that Cindy Morgan, who plays Lacey Underall, right. Judge Smales' uh, niece, uh, she tells the story about how like, oh, there's just this guy who comes in at, at dinner. And then next thing you know, like she's in her, her room later that night. And that that weird guy from dinner knocks on her door and was like, hey, you you want to get out of here? And then she's like, next thing I knew, I woke up on a nude beach with Bill Murray. Oh my and goodness. like so that's and that was what they did. Like they went, uh, you know, they they shot in Florida. <laughs> to be across the country from the studio heads. And, um, but yeah, but Bill Murray would show up and they would just say, okay, this is the, this is the gist. Like there's a story in, in the book where, um, they're getting him ready. Oh, it's before he, they did this, the Cinderella story scene. Yeah. And, uh, I I feel like we're getting way ahead ahead of of ourselves. So why don't we take a step back? Okay. (laughs) No, 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 be the ball. Be the podcast. Be the podcast. All right. Why don't you tee up those synopsises? The Bushwood Country Club is an elite establishment that prides itself on its exclusivity. On its exclusivity. It's also home of a ragtag group of caddies who are just trying to make a few bucks. One such caddy is Danny Noonan, who's trying to make good with club co-founder Judge Smales in order to have a shot at a coveted caddy scholarship. Meanwhile, local real estate mogul Al Chervik visits the club and makes Judge Smales very irritated with his brash sense of humor. They ultimately arrange a high-stakes bet over a golf game. The judge is paired with another WASPy member, and Al plays with Ty Webb, the wealthy son of the club's, of the club's other co-founder who doesn't seem to care for the snootiness for the, of the country club. But when Al fakes an injury to make up for his poor playing, Ty suggests Danny, the caddy, step in. By this point, Danny has lost favor of the judge after he's caught sleeping with the judge's niece, and Al, prom- and Al promises to make it worth his while should they win. All the while, Carl, the club's assistant groundskeeper, is doing his best to get a gopher to stop terrorizing the golf course. This is the best I could do synopsis-wise, considering that this movie's plot is, like, barely paper-thin. So, yes, and you had mentioned um, the judge's niece, uh, Cindy Morgan. Uh, I'm sorry, Lacey Underall, played by Cindy Morgan. And she uh, is kind of the object of everybody's affection she walks into a room and everybody's eyes turn to her. So, you know, first she ends up with Ty and then she uh, ends up with Danny, who's also in a relationship with Maggie, who we mentioned earlier, Sarah Holcomb. And there's like this whole thing about that. Maybe she's pregnant and he offers to Matt. It's just like a total mess. Like it's, it seems like that stuff was all the stuff in the script and it doesn't just it just doesn't make any sense with all of the other stuff distracting you. So uh, I'm sorry, Dan. Now, wh- whatever you were saying, sorry, I, I needed to kind of go back and just fill in some oh. of those blanks. Oh, by the way, um, so Chevy Chase plays Ty Webb. Roddy Dangerfield is Al Chervik. Um, Ted Knight is Judge Smales, who's 
perfect in the role. The only one on on set who did not do a- any drugs. Yeah. Um, Bill Murray is Carl. I've already mentioned Michael O'Keefe as Danny. Sarah Holcomb as Maggie. Uh, Scott Columbia as Tony. Uh, who else do we have? Brian Doyle Murray is uh, Lou, who kind of uh, manages the caddies. Uh, who am I missing, Dan? Um, for some reason, it, might, it like is Spalding. <laughs> oh, Spalding. Um, yeah. So John F. Barman Jr. is Spalding Smales, the grandson of Judge Smales. Spalding is something else. He's uh, a little piece of garbage. Um, he is, but he's so like, it's like, you know that you, you, it's kind of, I feel like everyone knows someone like Spalding. Yeah. He's just like a little or shit. Has known, he's yeah, a little rich it, shit. Turds, rat turds, monkey turds. Yeah. He is. Yeah. Um, so anyway, you're it, talking about Carl and the Cinderella story. Oh, so the, so, uh, you know, one of the many famous famous scenes from this movie is when it has absolutely nothing to do with anything else. And it's just, it's Carl and he's lopping the heads off mums with, uh, with like a, a grass whacker, I think, or some type of, yeah. Some and gardening he's tool. pretending to golf. Basically the only direction he got for that scene was, um, I think Harold Ramis told him a story, told him like, he was like, yeah, you know, I, um, he's like, you know, I'm trying to exercise, trying to get in good shape. And he's like, do you ever like to motivate yourself? Do you ever do like sports commentary Uh in your head? And be like, he's, he's like, when I run, I, I, I do that in my head. And it's like Ramis coming around, you know, in the lead and, and Bill Murray just kind of stopped him was like, yeah, I know, I know. Okay, so let's listen to that scene. Yeah. What an incredible Cinderella story. This unknown comes out of nowhere to lead the pack. Bad Augusta, he's on his final hole. He's about 455 yards away. He's going to hit about a two iron, I think. Well, you got all of that. The crowd is standing on his feet here at Augusta. The normally reserved Augusta crowd going wild. For this young Cinderella, who's come out of nowhere, he's got about 350 yards left. He's going to hit about a five-iron expect, don't you think? He's got a beautiful backswing. Dad, oh, he got all of that one. He's got to be pleased with that. The crowd is just on his feet here. He's a Cinderella boy. Uh, tears in his eyes, I guess, as he, as he lines up this last shot. He's got about 195 yards left, and he's going to... Looks like he's got about an eight-iron. This crowd has gone deadly silent. Cinderella story, out of nowhere. A former greenskeeper now about to become the Masters champion. <clears throat> it looks like I'm a wreck. It's in the hole! It's in the hole! Hey, young he fellow, his... I was hoping to squeeze in nine holes before this rain starts. Uh, certainly, Your Eminency. All right, so, yeah, it's really, it's a minute and a half of meaninglessness but yet it's one of the things that people see this movie for yeah no it's true 
I mean, Cinderella's Cinderella's story. I mean, like, could that phrase have? Should we have done this when we did our our movies that introduced phrases? Yeah. Like, uh, was that no, the? I, do you think that this was the the birth of that phrase? I I I don't know. I mean, clearly there's Cinderella. Well, yeah, there's of course, yeah. So I mean, the way that I see this movie is not so much as a narrative story with a beginning, middle, and end that a synopsis can cover, but it is a string of uh, loosely connected sketches, all having to do with golf. You know. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I feel like that's the best way to characterize it. And I look, here's the thing is like, I get why people love this movie. I get why it, you know, really sparked, um, I don't know, this, this counterculture of comedy, you know, all Animal House really sparked it. But like well, Animal yeah. House was a cohesive story. Right. Yeah. Right. Similarly, about the experience, about people's experiences, uh, younger, um, Chris Miller was one of the co-writers of Animal House, who he also wrote a great book, uh, which I forget what it was called, but it was basically like him telling the actual stories that inspired parts of the Animal House screenplay. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, and it's, there's some, right, there's a lot of different, like sketches yeah. that th- there's different, there's these different through lines and you don't, you don't remember it for the story. You remember it for, you know, for the, for the different scenes and the like, Oh wow. I can't believe because for I, a lot of the things, it was the first time you, the, the baby Ruth pool scene. Right. Yeah. So there's a scene where uh, the caddies, it's like caddy day and they can be in the pool for like 15 minutes or something, you know, yeah, and it's something ridiculous like the like members that. pool. So they're going wild. And meanwhile, there's like this little girl, these like little, these girls, like kids who have a baby Ruth bar and one of them just kind of like chucks it behind her and it goes in the pool and... What does a candy bar in a pool look like? Duty! Yeah. And, um, yes. So, uh, and this movie is also known for The Gopher. The Gopher, very uh, last minute edition. Right. And But you know what? It's what a lot of people remember this movie for, if not for, you know, Bill Murray, if not for Chevy Chase, they remember it for this gopher and, you know, Kenny Loggins. And uh, this movie, real quick, does mm-hmm. something that I love to talk about, which is when a movie references a recently released movie. And what is it? Five years, five years after Jaws. Five years after Jaws. But John... There's another one in this that's even more impressive. What, which one is it? Because Caddyshack came out about a month after The Shining. And there's that one part where Judge Smales takes the golf club and is trying to break the bathroom oh, door yeah. open because Danny's in there and definitely sticks his face in the crack like Nicholson in The Shining. See, that's I didn't pick up on that one, but that is... 
I was watching and I was like, wait a if second, which one came out? Yeah. I was like, which one came out first? I was like scrambling to look for, for release. Well, they, they, I mean, they were both, well, I guess Orion um, was not under the Warner Brothers uh, umbrella yet. But um, I mean, yeah, I don't, I, who knows? I mean, Stanley Kubrick could have shot that shot like two years earlier. Yeah, it's possible. <laughs> you know yeah so anyway um now i want to talk because i know that we could go on and on and on about caddyshack i want to talk about caddyshack 2 which came out in 88 88 88 so this was and uh in in your chat with chris you definitely talk more about how this came about but um essentially like it was intended to be more inclusive of the the previous cast members but Things didn't work out. You'll hear about that in a little bit. And uh, in this one, we have a another real estate developer because Al Chervik is also a real estate guy. Um, but this is about another real estate guy that's, uh, you know, around the Bushwood community. So here's a little <laughs> uh, synopsis for this one. All that Kate Hartunian wants is to become a member of the Bushwood Country Club. But in order to get in, she needs her wealthy father, Jack, to make a good impression to the club president, Chandler Young. Kate already has a good chance as she's friends with Chandler's daughter, Miffy, and may also be dating Chandler's son, Todd. Kate's dad, Jack, is a good guy, albeit quirky. He's a real estate developer currently working on low-income apartments, which doesn't sit well with Chandler's wife, Cynthia, as it would welcome an undesirable class of people to the Bushwood community. After Jack and Chandler seriously have it out, Chandler and friends use their connections to make life tough for Jack and his business. Jack retaliated by purchasing 51% of the Bushwood shares from Ty Webb. He then turns the club into a giant golf-themed water park and wacky golf course. Having had enough, Chandler finds an old war veteran to kill Jack, and the plan is to get a winner-takes-all golf match going between Jack and Chandler, but when it all comes down to the final putt, the assassin's plot is foiled by none other than the gopher. So that's the plot. It has one. Yes. <laughs> yes, it does. It, it has a more, I would argue, a more cohesive plot than its predecessor. I I would also, my, my theory with Caddyshack 2 is that it's also it's Caddyshack for kids. It's Caddyshack Junior. It's a cartoon. Well, also there, yes, there are caddies in it. There's Harry, who's played by Jonathan Silverman. But aside mm -hmm. from that, there's really no, not much caddy about it. Uh, there's more in Caddyshack about caddies, and it's still lacking <laughs> a lot of caddy meat. But uh, yeah, the, the caddy shack is not even in Caddyshack. No, no, too. no. So uh, Jackie Mason uh, it essentially replaces uh, Roddy Dangerfield and plays uh, Jack Hartunian, who we have to imagine is related to Harry Hartunian, Jackie Mason's character in The Jerk. That's how you know that that this character was a very was a late substitution in the script because it, they did not even have time to come up with a new last name for yeah. Jackie Mason. Well, unless he wanted to just use that oh, last wait. name as kind of like a oh. nod to the jerk. Um, 
I don't, know. I don't maybe the jerk also was released it was funny 1980 big com big comedy summer because mm. you have caddyshack the blues brothers right. the jerk and airplane yeah that's right yeah, yeah uh so okay so then we've got uh playing chandler young we've got robert stack who's amazing this is like the part that robert stack is meant to play the snooty rich guy trying to save a country club so many great line deliveries yeah. I, i'm su- i am such a fan of robert stack in this movie yes uh robert unsolved mysteries stack just so good uh we have randy quaid as the as jack's attorney peter blunt and um i believe i read in some trivia that it was put, it was possibly written for sam kinnison um when dangerfield was working on the the script with ramus mm. He originally developed the part for Sam Kinison, which can totally when you see watch that. it, it makes a lot of sense. And but Randy Quaid is great; uh, he's really yeah. great in this. Uh, we have Dan Aykroyd as Captain Tom Everett, the assassin, uh, potentially uh, the the birth of uh, his his role in Gross Point Blank. <laughs> I have the same note. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's, you know, definitely the the Bill Murray replacement. He's got the funny voice. He's got just like totally ridiculous. Uh, Chevy Chase is back as Ty Webb. Um, we have Diane Cannon as Elizabeth. What? West Seattle High School alum. I know she's from Tacoma. So that makes sense. She, yeah. she graduated. Her picture is up on our wall of fame. Diane Cannon is, uh, she is Jackie Mason's love interest. And I have to give her a lot of credit because she sells it. She is totally endeared by him. And she kind of gives off the impression that her character is like, you know, damned it if I, you know, am not attracted to this guy. Like, what's going on? I don't get it either. But I just, I just really like the way that he does his shtick. She goes with it and she, I I feel like her character and her performance, she manages everyone really well. Like when Jack is totally, totally embarrassing Kate at the, uh, the, the auction, which we'll talk about in in a moment. Um, she, she, she has this entrance. She shoves an hors d'oeuvre into Jack's mouth and she's she does all the greetings she's, oh yeah oh always a pleasure yeah. and so lovely to see you and like play pulls it off she's not fake about it she's you know not like a lot of the other people there yep so uh but, yeah. kate hartunian is played by jessica lundy uh i think she did some sitcom stuff in more recent years uh oh yes yes what was she, i want to say she was she on my name is earl or am i i'm not sure totally on that but um she was totally good well, and uh and as her friend miffy we've got none other than china phillips of wilson phillips rock and roll royalty right rock there. and roll royalty uh not just in her own right but also from her parents who were in the mamas and the papas and uh, she's great as Miffy, the stuck-up, spoiled friend who's, you know, the country club uh, brat. And, um, yeah, she's fantastic. She's uh, she's married to Billy Baldwin in real life, not in the, in yeah. the movie. And um, he's one of the he's one of the good Baldwins. 
possibly the best Baldwin. I I've never thought about it before, but um, yeah, I I think uh, maybe not yeah, so much the, in acting, but definitely in just overall, just overall, overall. Like if yeah, if you had to, if you know, you can only keep one. <laughs> um, I my pick would not be Stephen. Um, I not Danny. No. I like Alec, but I think Bi- Billy. Uh, Billy's great. William Baldwin. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, absolutely. And backdraft Billy. Yeah, and that's right. So, uh, just because I fell into a lot of Wikipedia wormholes, and you know, because I was thinking about Billy Baldwin, and you know, he and I, and I will also say you, we have uh, similar political views, and. Uh, such is not the case with Jackie Mason. I was actually very surprised that his character in this movie, who is a very um, sympathetic man who's building low-income housing, uh, is, I mean, he's anti-Palestine. He is a Trump supporter. Um, yeah, just not my kind of guy. Yeah. But what's funny is, like, I remember growing up and just being in, you know, a a Jewish family. We went to this, like, Jewish day camp at a Mm -hmm. synagogue. And I remember seeing there was, like, the the shop at at the temple. And in the window, they had, like, Jackie Mason books. And uh, do you you don't remember this, do you? It was for some reason it sticks out in my memory of like you know him kind of like resting on his at on his head yak at like Ancha Chesed yes yak day camp in Linden, New Jersey. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I I I I do have a vague recollection of this, but it's but one yes, of those little things that pops into my memory, and uh, um, also we have a uh, a family friend, <laughs> I past guest. I I hope I'm. You know what? Okay, whatever. Jeff Rubin, past guest Jeff Rubin, uh, <laughs> when uh, he and his parents were at Dan's wedding, I re- I believe that it was at Dan's wedding. It was it was like the day of or the day yeah. before the wedding because I rem- I rem- I I remember she has well. a very heavy like New Jersey New York Jewish accent. Um, a lot of Yiddish comes out of that mouth. We'll just put it that way. I mean, if you think like, I mean, and uh, you think, you know, coffee talk, SNL. And she was uh, just like going on and on and on about something. And then she just goes, I sound like Jackie Mason. And I'm just like, oh my God, she does. (laughs) She totally sounded like Jackie Mason. Yeah. (laughs) The fact that she called it out about herself was amazing. In the middle of it, was it like that or like, why do I sound like Jackie Mason? (laughs) And it's great because I, I and I do think that growing up in that environment, right. in that New York area Jewish community, yes. I think that lent itself to our appreciation of Jackie Mason in this movie. Right. And you know what? He is very endearing in this movie. Um, I'm going to play a clip from when I, you know, you're mentioning the scene where where he goes to this function at the club. And uh, I'm going to play the scene where he and his daughter are about to enter the club. Pop. Daddy. Did you have to wear that tux? Why? What's wrong with it? Blue. It's not just blue. If you look at it this way, purple. 
You look at it like this. Cool. Beautiful. Eh? Come on, sweetheart. People here like their tuxedos black. Sure. They like their noses red, their blood blue, their faces white. <laughs> Until they hire help. Then all of a sudden you'll notice that they want every face to be black, brown, or yellow. Isn't that amazing? I'm not a hypocrite enough to go alone with a color scheme like that. Yeah. Look, Pop, I don't expect you to change all at once. If you could just turn down the volume a little. I'm going to introduce you to this guy I really like. So tonight, could you just pretend that you like everyone? Pretend? Listen, I'm Jack Hartoon. I can't pretend to like people that I don't like. Listen, I don't know why you're so impressed with these Fanzanoons anyway. What's a Fanzanoon? A Fanzanoon is a guy who farts in the bathtub and bites the bubbles. Love it. <sighs> yeah, I think that's a good, like... I think that's a great line. And yeah, totally. Yeah, and of, and he's of substance. He's very much himself. You know, he his the kind of the physicality that he has when he's showing off how his tux changes color depending on which way you look at it is really funny and something that I always remember and think about. I also want to play another scene, and this is a callback to. The first movie where he is getting some golfing lessons from Ty Webb and this clip I'm about to play ends with a line that I have thought about constantly since I first heard it as a child. What you want to do is clear your mind. Okay, watch me. Okay, take a deep breath. Close your eyes. Just be the ball. Be the ball. Be the ball. Be the ball. Na 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 Jack, you're not being the ball. Be the ball. Do me a favor. Why don't you be the ball? I wanted to be a piece of sports equipment. I'd be a lady's bicycle seat. I think about that line constantly. It's I when I first saw that when I was a kid, I was like, I know that that's funny, but I don't really understand it. And, uh, you know, and it's just like, oh, you, you grow up, you understand it pretty, pretty quickly, you know, once you, once you get to a certain age, but like, then I appreciated it in a certain way. And when I was watching it the other day and that line came up, I was just like, uh, thank you. Thank you for that line. You needed that. Huh? <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It, it's, it, and I mean, like I was 11 when I saw there 11 or 12 right. when when I when I saw this and I'm pretty sure I, I think I got it I think like that is exactly that's the level it's it's like we are gonna make this joke just dirty enough so that the, our target audience t of of like 10 11 and 12 year olds yeah but will... even as a what, five or six year old I still like there was something about it that was just like for some reason, this is really funny. And I know that for me, this seems really kind of gross and weird as a five or six year old. But the way that this is, I can tell that it's funny. 
I think the reaction that Chevy Chase and Jonathan Silverman yeah, they have just kind to of it, like a look before the awkward fade out. Yeah, that one which, did have a fade out. That, that's one thing that is retained from the original are just out. those kind of like, yeah. And uh, another. So, so and then to come back to that scene. So, of course, these are movies from from the 80s. Not everything ages well. Um, and there are a few things in, in, in the first one, um, get into that in, in the interview a little bit, uh, that, that don't, that don't age well, but I would say that the, that the biggest offender is, is this, is this scene is the Bushwood slave presided over by Paul, Paul Bartel, uh, Plays uh, Jameson. Auteur. Yeah. Yes. So, Mr. Or is it Mrs.? Yeah. So, this one, a um, little bit of a warning before this one. You know, this does get into some racist territory, and uh, we do not condone the humor behind this uh, and do not want to hide behind the it was a different time mindset of it. It is certainly, no. and it is certainly make, it is mocking. The fact that people thought this way, it, you know, similarly to the, you know, in, in Fletch Lives, how there's, you know, the the party that he goes to, that's the Confederacy party. But yeah, uh, anyway, that that's all I have to say. Let's just listen to it. Attention, everyone. It's time for our little slave auction. Now, remember, it's all for charity. So let's see if we can break last year's record of four thousand. $500. Break out your checkbooks and think Mandingo while I read the list of this year's willing slaves. What is this all about? It's a little game they play when they feel guilty about being rich. Say so the auction off the judge and the chairperson, whoever, and you buy them, you take them home, and they sweep your floors or clean your garage or help you plant roses, and then afterwards you give them lunch and a martini. I mean, it's very civilized. It's so civilized. How do you do? Nice to see you. <laughs> Jack, I'd like to have a word with you. Hey, Chandler, how are you? <laughs> Mr. Club President, how do you feel? <laughs> I'm having the time of my life here. Everything is lovely, wonderful. Yes, it is. Here's the thing. My wife and I spoke to several of our members. We all feel that after tonight, it might be better if you didn't visit the club for a while. What do you mean for a while? Well, ever, actually. We just don't feel your Bushwood material. Whole messy apartment business. The attempt on Cynthia's life. You understand, I'm sure. So I'm gonna actually stop it there. I I, I kept I had the whole thing, oh. but I uh, we could just explain it. What had, ends up happening is he uh, outbids everybody for every single person up for it and has them do work on the apartments. The best part of that scene is there is a some like a voice i think it's like someone dubbing in like adr uh-huh. crowd noise and there's someone who they keep it's like the same person who when jack makes his first bid for for cynthia um and everyone's shocked you hear I thought he left. Oh. And then when, when he's in the bidding war with Chandler, the same guy, you finish him, Chandler. 
But yeah, and uh, so what ends up happening is all of these, the, the Bushwood club members end up having, uh, they do a, a day's work on one of Jack's construction sites. And, you know, I was actually, I was, I was kind of, I was a little conflicted and I was like, you know, how does that play now? Like, is it, are we suggesting that just like a day's honest work is punishment or uh i don't know are, i don't know i think are we just gonna kind of enjoy it yeah i mean i think that it's it's fine in the context of this movie and this story uh you know the it's certainly not legal or you know an admirable thing to do because it's no, just gonna but- piss people off but I, you know, I when when you hear them, uh, when when Diane Cannon describes what this right. is, I mean, like I haven't asked anybody about this or done any research, but like I wonder if this is the type of thing that happened or happens at country clubs. Like I don't have a hard time imagining right. that this type of thing happened in the eighties. Yeah, uh, and but I'm constantly, uh, you know, surprised. So who knows? It could have, it could still be going on. Um, but it, it's really interesting because like, it, this is a ridiculous, it's a ridiculous movie and it, it's so stupid, but there's, there's definitely this, uh, you know, class struggle. And, and this comes out in, in 88, it's the end of the, of the Reagan yeah. era, the, you know, where when the rich got richer, the poor got poor, trickle down e- economics. Yeah. And um it, so you 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 know, like we're 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 at the tail end of that. And um there's a part of it that that feels like, okay, well, you know what, for as ridiculous as this movie is and have as much of a cartoon as it is, it, it makes some points. Right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, they're not being very uh, discreet or clever with the opinions of the writers uh, about, you know, race and uh, um, and, and equality and and rights for the, uh, you know, the, the not ultra wealthy. Um, and I want to, uh, you know, you talk about cartoonishness and <laughs> what you just said and. That makes me just want to uh, get into a little bit more about the character of Peter Blunt. And this is the the ultimate equalizer. And uh, Randy Quaid, it's like he's acting in a different movie. And, and not in the sense that like he doesn't fit into this, but it's like he is performing at a different level from everybody else. And I really appreciate that. So here's an interaction he has towards the end of the movie with Robert Stack. Look, uh, I don't know much about golf, but uh, I do know the difference between a 50-foot putt and a two-foot putt. <laughs> and frankly, it's always been my experience to go with the guy closer to the hole, if you know what I mean. <laughs> You're my kind of guy. <laughs> Can I give you a little, little friendly advice? Yeah. Have you ever tried putting with a wedgie? A wedgie? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's great, it's great. All the pros are doing it. Would you Would you like me to show you? Yeah. Oh, see, what you do is you just 
take your normal stance like you're gonna putt the ball. Yeah, just like that. You never you never putt it with a wedgie? No. Uh, you just take your stance and then this is a wedgie! <laughs> Try putting with that crammed up your crack. <laughs> Uh, a wedgie for all of our bogus journey fans is a Melvin. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love how he begins that little scene by talking about how he doesn't know much about golf. And then all yeah. of a sudden knows about this secret thing that all the pros are right. And Robert Stack is just going along yeah. with it because of the, the, the joke. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, uh, it, we, we haven't really talked about well we talked a little bit about about Dan Aykroyd's character um i i don't know if i i, I still think it's funny the the whole uh, you know Mr. Sanderson and Mrs. Esther house right yeah aliases I, I find that all very funny um you know i'm just going to play i have a clip pulled but i'm just going to play part of the clip because it's kind of long i'll play the beginning and the end Chandler Young? Yes? Our mutual friend told me to meet you here. Captain Tom Everett, United States Marine Corps, item 58, Company A, retired. I'm expecting someone with some sort of vehicle, but not this. Yeah. Well, think truck. about it. Your objective is to surveil a target operating in the construction oh, business. <laughs> What could be better suited for this type of covert recon than a barf wagon? <laughs> All right, so, stripping Chandler's car in the background. Yeah, so you you get the point of uh, of his character. So I'm just going to skip ahead to uh, the end of this after he's outlined how he wants um, uh, Jack Hartunian eliminated. Should we uh, swear a blood oath on it or something? Uh, I don't think that will be necessary, Captain Everett. Okay. From now on, in future communications, you'll refer to me as uh, Mr. Sanderson, and I will refer to you as um, Mrs. Esterhouse. Fine. Well, I guess that's it then. Oh, Mr. Sanderson. Goodbye, Mrs. Esterhouse. Ridiculous. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um I'm always happy to listen to 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 Robert Stack in this movie. He's just he he has got so many of these great little lines there. Yeah. Uh, you, I also, oh, oh. you know, I'd like to see Dan Aykroyd just ha- being goofy and having fun. Yeah. I I know that the character is schlocky and weird and a total doofus and you know, really just there to bring back the gopher, you know? Uh, yeah. But uh, I don't know. I I still like it. it it's got that. Yeah. It, it, I, I also think it just has that like ridiculousness uh, of like we watched it a lot when we were kids. Totally. And that was really funny to us. So, um, but yeah, you know, uh, there's one one person one, uh, who we who we haven't talked about that was involved with both of these of these films, and I would say plays a role, um, even if we don't see him on screen. That's Mr. Kenny Loggins. <laughs> yes, Kenny Loggins. Uh, I'm all right. Is the uh, 
the theme of, um, you know, Caddyshack. It's the theme of the first one. It's really, it's like, you know, Danny Noonan's theme, um, which I really appreciate. I'm all right. I love Nobody's Fool. Oh, yeah? The the theme from Caddyshack 2. I, I love it. I first of all just love it. It's a great song. Like, you know, I put it on any, any of my, like, you know, it's a walking playlists. And, um, you know, it's it it's got a great beat to it. But it also references the movie. And Does references, it? it also references I'm All Right. You know, I have to the, listen back to it. There's a verse where he, he sings, still all right. Oh, that's funny. I don't think I've ever really paid too much attention to that song. Oh, he sings, it's that. And they say, his time has taught me anything. Gotta learn to be the ball. Oh, my God. And there's there's that. Um, oh, there, I feel like there's another direct reference to the movie. Um, Probably the fact that he was on cocaine when he wrote it. I, I I don't know. I can't I can't speak for Kenny Loggins. Uh, I I could not tell you if he was or wasn't. Yeah. But um. So so back to the shack, which was uh, which shack. was like the the tagline of back to the shack. Oh, oh yeah. So funny. You know Kenny um, Loggins. Yeah. You know really nailed it when it came to. You know, these songs for, you know, 80s movies. Oh, de- Danger Zone. Yeah. Man. Like, do you uh, really even need to go any further than that? No. I don't I, I don't know. I'm looking at the lyrics for, for Nobody's Fool and looking for all of the other... Um, the references? The, the references, yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's still all right. Um, but it's a great song. Yeah, it's a, it's a. Well, everyone, go to your right your preferred streaming service, or go on YouTube and look it up and check it out. And we're going to actually uh, take a break and and put on Dan's interview with uh, with Chris Nashawadi. And uh, yeah, Dan, anything you want to say before we cue that up? Uh, just wanted to, uh, if uh, Chris is listening, want to thank him again uh, for taking the time out of his schedule to chat. I really in- enjoyed it. And I want to also encourage uh, anyone who wants to learn more about what happened behind the scenes of Caddyshack to check out the book Caddyshack, The Making of a uh, Hollywood Cinderella Story. All right, Starfighters, we've got a treat for you on this episode because we're talking about Caddyshack and we have the privilege of talking with the man who literally wrote the book on uh, on Caddyshack, uh, Chris Nashawadi, who uh, who um, who wrote the book. And I'm shamefully not looking at the full title at the moment, but uh, Caddyshack, I, I... the making of a Hollywood Cinderella story. Yes, making of a Hollywood Cinderella story, um, which is an an excellent book. As as one of the um, uh, as as one of the like uh, quotes on the on the on the cover says, uh, the Washington Post found it uh, more entertaining reading the book than watching the movie. Uh, and I would definitely reading this book if you've seen Caddyshack. I, um, reading this book just op- blasts open your understanding of 
how everything came together and how what you see on the screen came to be, I guess, miraculously. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I wanted to start just by asking you first, um, you know, uh, when did you first see Caddyshack and what were your first impressions? Um, geez, that's a good question. And one I've been asked before, I don't entirely remember I would, you know, when Caddyshack came out, I was um, 11 years old. So I think it's highly unlikely I saw it in the theater. I definitely remember seeing it on late night uh, cable, like HBO or Showtime or one of those early sort of like movie channels um, at home and uh, recording it on a clunky old VHS tape and, uh, and watching it like a million times after that, both alone and with my older brother and with my friends in junior high school, uh, all the way through high school and basically memorizing every line in the film, just like everyone else does. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely a fun movie to watch, to, uh, to watch with others. Um, and so now you wrote your, your book was published in uh, 2018. That's right. So what, what inspired you to write to research and write a whole book about not just really about Caddyshack, but about the the personalities and minds that that brought it all together. Well, um, it's interesting. I mean, like y- you don't write a book about a movie you don't love. It's just too much work to to and, and time to 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 you know dive that deeply into something that you aren't passionate about. So it certainly helped that I that I first of all that I like the movie, but. Back in 2010, which would have been the 30th anniversary of Caddyshack, um, I was assigned by Sports Illustrated to write an oral history uh, about the making of the movie. And I really didn't know much about the making of the movie, to to be honest. I just knew that I loved the movie. And so um, I began writing, uh, interviewing, you know, Chevy Chase and Harold Ramis, the director, and... um, uh, Bill Murray and Cindy Morgan and, and just, you know, the entire cast. Um, and one of the things that quickly became clear is that, A, this movie was a nightmare to make, um, but in like a really fun way. Um, everyone had tons of amazing stories about um, just like what was going on on the set, the fights with the studio, the amount of drugs that were be- being taken on the set. It just was this great story. And and frankly, there was so much more material out of, that came out of those interviews than I could possibly squeeze into a five-page story in Sports Illustrated that, you know, by the time the story was done, I had so much stuff that I was like, you know, I've got to revisit this at some point and dig deeper and cast the net wider and talk to more people. Um, and, and it just sort of took on a life of its own after that. So, so the Sports Illustrated piece was like, you know dunking your you know your your toes into the pool and then um i really liked how the water felt and i dove in <laughs> along with all of the topless caddies and the baby ruth bar that's right that's right <laughs> yeah um yeah and it's quite a story I, I, and actually i was really glad when i started reading the book that i had kind of already been familiar i'd already seen the documentary drunk stoned brilliant dead yeah. about uh the rise of national lampoon which really ties in with with how caddyshack uh came to be and uh Going back to the original idea for Caddyshack, uh, um, now we know that Caddyshack kind of turned out to be 
a, a, a vehicle for, for Chevy Chase, Rodney Dangerfield, Bill Murray primarily. But it started, uh, as, as I read in your book, um, as a mostly an autobiographical project by Brian Doyle Murray about yeah. the the Murray brothers as, as caddies in, in Illinois. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's something that a lot of people don't know, you know, it's, it's a Caddyshack is like actually as, you know, as goofy as it is. Um, it's, it's really in a lot of ways, a very personal coming of age story for the Murray family. Um, you know, they, they were, uh, a big group. I think there were nine kids in all. Um, I'd have to double check that, but you know, it was this Irish Catholic family um, in the suburbs north of Chicago, and they were sort of a blue collar family in a pretty ritzy part of Illinois. You know, they they um, sort of earned their way. Uh, they earned their tuition for for private Jesuit school um, by caddying all summer, all the boys in the family would. And, you know, they got these great stories about like the crazy people that they would caddy for some of the, you know, the sort of insane antics that, you know, the caddies would get up to. And, um, and it really, there's also sort of this weird class struggle going on um, in the film and in the screenplay about being like Danny Noonan being this sort of middle-class kid you know, pressing his nose up against the glass of like the people who are wealthy and how he sort of wants entry into that world. And that's all really autobiographical for Brian Doyle Murray and his younger brother, Bill. And so, yeah, people don't, people think of it as this sort of follow up to Animal House, this sort of snobs versus the slobs sort of broad comedy. But there's a lot, I think, a lot more. If once you know it, there's a lot more going on in the film. Yeah, I was really uh I was really struck by that and thinking of of Caddyshack more as like Danny's story and how Danny is influenced by the different people he comes into contact with at Bushwood. So I was wondering uh um assuming uh, you know that you'd spoken to to Brian Doyle Murray about it. I was curious to know a little bit more about kind of how he felt about the project as it as it went through the you know filming stages and you know adding more scenes with with Bill and and Rodney and Chevy how he felt about it becoming less about Danny and uh uh, uh Denunzio and Maggie yeah i mean it's funny that that wasn't as you said i mean the movie began and the screenplay is more focused on the caddies and you know the characters who are played by Rodney Dangerfield and Bill Murray and, you know, Chevy are, are really more supporting characters in the script. It's really this sort of coming of age story. But once they got on the set, um, it was so clear to everyone that the, the comedy gold that they were getting was coming from these side characters. So, you know, Harold Ramis, who directed the movie and co-wrote it with Doug Kenny and Brian Dole Murray, you know, he had been deeply trained in Second City and improvisation, and this was his first film as a director, so he didn't really know the rules of making a movie. So they decided to just sort of like scrap the script altogether and sort of throw it into the trash and just improv these scenes. I mean, Bill Murray's scenes as Carl Spackler aren't even in the script, really. I mean, they just leave these giant, you know, space blank spaces for him to just create these moments like Cinderella's story and, and the Dalai Lama. And, and, you know, that stuff is so good that the movie became something else entirely. 
Um, and I don't think Brian Doyle Murray was upset by that at all because mm. he wanted the funniest possible movie he could get. And and Brian Doyle Murray came up through Second City as well. And he sort of understood the process of the film they were making. Not that it was like the right way to make a movie, but it was certainly the right way to make this movie. Yeah, it's, he strikes me as, as such, I don't want to say egoless, but someone who's really willing to, you know, sacrifice for the the project, the quality of the project as a whole. Um, but another thing that I was, I was wondering, like if he ever seeing, seeing as how Caddyshack, you know, went away from the caddies, I was wondering if he had ever, uh, to the best of your knowledge, thought about revisiting that in some way, shape or form. Um, uh, I was thinking also, I was thinking about the book that Chris Miller wrote about his experiences that influenced Animal House and wondering if if Brian Doyle Murray had ever considered maybe something like that or, or a series. You know, I don't I don't I don't think so. I mean, I think that, you know, Caddyshack probably got his golf, you know, story out, out of his, you know, off of his plate. You know, what's interesting about <clears throat> Caddyshack, you know, it, it is Brian Doyle Murray's idea originally. I mean, the idea was his. But he actually, it's kind of a funny story, you know, his co-writers, Harold Ramis and Doug Kenny, had just had a huge success with Animal House, which they had also co-written with Chris Miller. And when that movie came out and became the biggest, you know, the highest grossing comedy of all time, um, you know, Doug Kenny and Harold Ramis were suddenly very hot in Hollywood. And a lot of studios wanted to be the one to make their next movie. And so they met... Um, with uh, Mike Medavoy, who was running Orion at the time. And they, you know, they were under the impression that anything that they pitched to him um, as their next movie, you know, would be greenlit. And so they came up with these ideas, which were, you know, in retrospect, not very interesting or not very good. They were just sort of like half-baked. And, you know, Medavoy just sat across the table from them and was like, yeah, I'm not really into any of these ideas. And out of desperation, they just on the spot remembered Brian's idea for a country club comedy. And without Brian in the room, they basically pitched his idea and said, well, that we've got this idea too. And they, they threw it out there and Metavoy was like, yeah, that's the one. And so when it was over, they, you know, they, they went to Brian Doyle Murray's hotel room uh, in Los Angeles and they knocked on the door and they were like, you know, we've got some good good news and some bad news. The bad news is we stole your idea. The good news is it's been greenlit and you're writing it with us. And he was like, let's get to work. Let's do it. You know, he was thrilled. Um, so it's it's a really funny story. Uh, but it, it's, you know, it just shows you um, how by the seat of their pants, these guys were, were operating at the time. Oh, yeah. And 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 this was more during the more structured and organized portion of uh of production or pre-production right. yeah um so speaking of of structure and and chaos uh, i wanted to uh talk a little bit about doug kenny who really is a focus of of the book uh and kind of like that driving energy of of chaos and uh you know madness really um you, both with and without the drugs but um you know thinking about thinking about Doug Kenny who uh who passed away not not long after Caddyshack uh opened and right. um you know he clearly someone who i i think if if his if 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 Doug Kenny 
was had had come along uh, a decade or two later he might have gotten the help that he needed clearly someone in in need of of help but also someone with a a, a brilliant and unique mind so I, I i was just kind of like wondering what what do you think he'd be up to today because like i could equally see him as like a, a recluse somewhere who every now and again like writes something that gets published you know it's, it's out there in like i don't playboy or something yeah, um, yeah, yeah you know or i don't know or does he become like an elder statesman of of comedy kind of like like harold ramus had become uh up until he passed a few years ago yeah i mean it's a great what if question i mean i think you know i i what's interesting to me is that you know um doug kenny was not going to be originally like kind of the through line or major character of the book um when I set out to write it. And, you know, the more I talked to people, I mean, he was, he was always a fascinating character in the book because, you know, he was, he went to Harvard. He was the editor of the Harvard Lampoon. He founded the National Lampoon. Um, He was brilliant there. He went on to Hollywood to write Animal House, you know, huge success. Then he does Caddyshack. I mean, like the guy was on a roll and, and young and handsome and charismatic and brilliant. Um, he was an interesting guy, but the more I talked to people like Chevy, who was like his best friend to Harold Ramis to Bill Murray, you know, they all without exception would say that Doug Kenny was like the brightest light of their group. He was the smartest. He was the funniest. He was sort of like the most, the, the quickest mind, you know, the, the, just the smartest guy in the room. And, and for someone like, Harold Ramis to say that, or for Bill Murray to say that, you know, like Doug Kenny was the smartest, uh, the funniest guy in the room. I mean, Jesus, I, have there been any rooms that Bill Murray wasn't the funniest guy in? Um, apparently so. And that just really piqued my interest in, in Doug Kenny. And, and, and so, you know, I, 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 it's sad and tragic that, you know, he got so swept up into drugs and cocaine, especially, and, and, and died so, so young. Um, but, you know, I think if he was around today, and this is pure guesswork, I have no idea, no one knows, um, I suspect he probably would have had a career a lot like Harold Ramis's. Um, in a lot of, I mean, you know, he, he, he would, I see him as sort of a writer, director, um, producer. Uh, you know, he, it's hard to look back and, and really think about how much he and Harold Ramis especially sort of redefined comedy or the the voice or the style of comedy um, in the late seventies and early eighties. I mean, they, they really, um, you know, when you think back about to the kind of comedies that Hollywood was, was making uh, before animal house, you know, it was, it was a totally different style of comedy and they had this, this much more satirical bent, you know, like sort of, you know, just smart and, and funny, but also not afraid to be just like hit below the belt and be sort of like, you know, juvenile. Um, so I, I suspect that he would have been, you know, like a, like a Harold Ramis sort of guy making his version of Groundhog Day, you know, making his version of, you know, Stripes, making his version of whatever. Um, or I could be entirely wrong and he could have become a recluse and, you know, and, and moved to, 
Kenya and written a novel and never be seen of again. I have no idea, but but I do know that that um, there was something to all the, all these people sort of said that you know when when Doug died, um, something it was a wake up call to a lot of people um, because they were all running really fast at the time and cocaine was seen to be a pretty harmless drug at the time, just something that made you funnier and, and could stay up later and, and had more energy and, you know, wasn't addictive and all that stuff. And and so everyone in Hollywood was doing it. Um, and, and he was really the first casualty of that lifestyle. I mean, two years before Belushi. Um, and, and, and so I think, you know, he became um, just sort of a cautionary tale in a way. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, cause his death was, you know, pretty i guess mysterious he uh, i guess allegedly fell off a cliff in in hawaii uh while he was there on on the the supposedly therapeutic vacation yeah um but you know i wonder if he had od'd if he had definitively od'd would that have would that have saved belushi would that have been I don't, yeah, you know, I mean, I that's getting know. into like a whole line of, yeah. of, of psychology that like, it's hard to, to pin down because, you know, if you're an addict, you know, nothing can really make you stop. You know, you could, you could watch your best friend die and, and that isn't enough to necessarily get you clean. Um, I do know that, that, you know, um, Doug was, his death is a mystery still. Um, most people believe it was an accident. Some people believe it was suicide. Um, he was very depressed. Uh, I think he was, he wasn't thrilled about the way that Caddyshack had come out. Um, he thought he could do better. He felt like he had made too many compromises making the movie. I mean, I think he was particularly upset about the gopher, uh, being such a big part of the movie. And, uh, he had a lot of fights with the studio. He was very sort of, you know, reckless at the time and, and, and just, you know, he got into fights easily with people and, you know, he just was out of control. And so, you know, it's, it's hard to say what really happened. Um, I think the sort of the best way of putting it is something that Harold Ramis said. Um, you know, he said, I think the quote is that, you know, some people say that, that Doug uh, slipped and some people say that he jumped and I think he probably slipped looking for a place to jump. So, right. you know, it just, you know, it's yeah. just, it's impossible to know. No. Yeah. Yeah. It also seems like on, uh, during the production of Caddyshack, he, he was kind of left to his own devices and didn't have as much to do. I, the book covers that pretty well, his feelings of kind of being useless and, and more and more so as the, as, as John Peters was taking more, more control um and and you know others at the studio they're pretty admirable um that metavoy was pretty hands off <laughs> yeah i mean at the time you know orion was was a new studio and metavoy had come up through united artists and their whole philosophy had been sort of to let the director direct the film and it had worked very well for them they won a bunch of oscars for it um but uh you know it i don't i not having that sort of supervision really got Caddyshack into a lot of trouble. Um, you know, they, they could have, when they were looking for a golf course to, to, you know, to, as a location to shoot the film, they could have easily chosen anywhere in Southern California. Um, but they decided to go to Florida because they wanted to be far away from the studio. You know, uh, they didn't want studio people coming on the set and looking over their shoulders and sort of saying, you know, like, 
pointing at their watch and saying, you know, speed it up or whatever. They wanted to just go off on their own. And, and, you know, that's, that's great. I understand that impulse completely, but you know, these were people who were to a large degree inexperienced making movies and uh, also really open to experimenting with drugs. And it's hard to find a place with more drugs in 1979 than Southern Florida, you know, which is pretty much the gateway for cocaine into the country uh, at the time. So, you know, they were, they sort of dug themselves into a hole uh, and, 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 you know, throwing away the script and improvising the whole thing certainly created a lot of headaches once they got to the editing room and, and nothing sort of fit together, um, which is why they had to, you know, sort of make room for the gopher to sort of weave it all together anyhow. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, but the movie was a mess. You know, it's funny. I mean, like, it, it's... There was a review in New York Magazine when the movie came out that called the movie an amiable mess. Um, and H Harold Ramis quoted the the review. He still remembered it to me. And um, and he's like, you know, they're not wrong. The movie is an amiable mess. It's a mess. It's, you know, it was my $7 million, uh, you know, film school. film school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he, they learned as they went and it was messy and, you know, it's in, an imperfect film, but you know, that's what makes it perfect. You know, it's just, it's sloppy and it's great. So speaking of, of, of sloppy and, and maybe perhaps according to some great, um, th so Caddyshack two came out in 1988, uh, what do you know about like when did I when did talk of a sequel start up? Yeah, it took a while. Um, you know what happened was at Caddyshack. One of the weirdest things about Caddyshack is that you know the movie was was pretty successful. Not like it wasn't a blockbuster or anything. You know it, it did okay. Uh, it made money, but not you know a ton of money at the time. It was only later that became like this this cult favorite sort of film. Um, but one of the things it did do is it, it turned Rodney Dangerfield into a movie star and Dangerfield, this was like his first real film. And, um, you know, he didn't know what the hell he was doing either, but he's great in the movie. And he, uh, had a real career renaissance around this time. And so after Caddyshack, he made a couple of other movies, um, that did really well. And, um, all of a sudden, you know, he was now a movie star. And so, you know, when that happened, uh, you know, they were, they started to think, okay, well, maybe it's time for Caddyshack too. Um, and maybe we don't get everyone back, but you know, if it's got Rodney, then, you know, it'll be a hit. And Rodney was, was, you know, all set to do it. I mean, I think he signed a deal, which was, I think he signed a deal that was like 7 million, he was going to get $7 million, uh, to do the movie, which at the time was insane. And, um, uh, eventually he ended up pulling out, but by that point it was too late in, in the process to sort of just pull the plug on the film. So they went ahead anyway and they replaced him with Jackie Mason, um, which, you know, was just a, a horrible idea. And, and, you know, it just, it, the movie doesn't work on so many levels, you know, it's arguably the worst sequel ever made. And, and, uh, it's just, I think, um, Look, I mean, Caddyshack is not a movie that leaves a lot of unanswered questions that is really, you know, begging for a sequel. But if you're going to make one, you got to at least have someone from the original movie. And while Chevy Chase is in the movie for a few minutes, um, it's pretty clear he's phoning it in. So, uh, 
you know, it's just a, it's just a mess. And <laughs> I wrote another story about Caddyshack too for Sports Illustrated. And, and it's like, you know, the first Caddyshack, everything went wrong, but it somehow came out great. And in Caddyshack 2, everything went wrong and it came out as a dumpster fire, you know? Yeah, I, I will say uh, for Caddyshack, and I got into it, I was uh, 10 going on 11 when Caddyshack 2 came out. Uh, and therefore, when it, when it was on VHS and on HBO, I watched it repeatedly and didn't know any better because I hadn't seen the original. And when I go back and watch it now... I, there, there are a couple of things like I, I like, I do appreciate how Caddyshack 2 kind of answers the question of like, what is Ty Webb doing there and that he owns, I guess, a majority share of, of the club. Um, uh, but otherwise, yeah, it's Chevy Chase and the the gopher and Kenny Loggins are like the three elements and Ramus was involved. Um, yeah, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't, they kept, he, he worked on it very briefly and you know nothing of his really remains in the movie they that he said you know he asked them to take his name off of it and they were like look if you take your name off of it everyone's gonna know um that this thing has the stink of death on it so just can you please as a favorite of the studio keep your name on it and he did but he really didn't have much to do with it but you're right i mean look it's the the connections between the two films are iffy at best and you know um there's just it feels like a very cynical movie to me. It just feels like a sequel for the sake of making a sequel. And, you know, the, the worst sin you can commit in a comedy is just it not being funny. And, you know, 99.5% of that movie is just not funny. It it did feel a lot like, especially the bigger stars, uh, Chevy Chase, uh, Dan Aykroyd, were kind of there, I don't know, as a favor, yeah. <laughs> doing a favor, or just trying to, like, Dan Aykroyd really seems like he's replicating what Bill Murray did right. in the original, and then yet Randy Quaid doing Randy Quaid. Yeah. Um, he's, the, he, he's probably the one thing in the movie I kind of <laughs> like, Randy Quaid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but even he, I mean, it's it's just, oh, it's terrible. It's a terrible movie. Yeah, I lo- I I I actually I have an appreciation for Robert Stack, and he's got some <laughs> great great line delivery. Like when uh, uh, when when they meet at the golf course, and his wife is like, he tried to kill me with a bulldozer, and Robert Stack. Now I'm sure he had his reasons. <laughs> right, right. He does. Yeah, I mean, like if you're gonna find someone to to fill the shoes of Ted Knight. Um, stack is a pretty, pretty decent place to go. Um, but still it's just, uh, I I mean, I think it's, it's, it's coming across like maybe you like the movie a little bit more than I did, but, um, I just, I have no appetite for it whatsoever. Oh, no, I, I, I get it. It's, you know, there's movies that I saw at a certain point in my life that I watched repeatedly. It's like, they're just, they're ingrained. Um, I use the word Fonzanoon in conversation. No one knows what I'm talking about. I just do it to amuse myself. But, um, so looking at, at, uh, kind of the, the state of comedy today, we're in a much different place. Half the lines in Caddyshack, you'd, you'd have a lot of trouble, uh, getting, uh, you know, getting, getting on screen today. So where in modern comedy do you see that, that Caddyshack DNA? You know, I think, I mean, obviously there's a generation of performers that came out of, like, I think probably most 
obvious would be like the Judd Apatow comedies that, um, you know, I mean, not that, not that he's like cranking out a lot of comedies these days, but, you know, like maybe 10 years ago, you know, there was that whole run of Judd Apatow comedies where, you know, or, or something like Anchorman where you, you would buy the DVD and they would have like these alternate takes of scenes where they're clearly the director is saying, you know, just riff and have fun and see what you come up with. Like that sort of freewheeling ad-libbing um, try to make the cameraman laugh sort of approach to comedy. I think that's probably the most clear, um, can, you know, through line from, from the Caddyshack brand of comedy. I mean, you're definitely right in the sense that like, you know, today, um, Caddyshack, you know, seems like a fairly problematic film. Um, a lot of movies from that era are, are deeply problematic if you watch them now. Um, I think that Caddyshack also has um, some very progressive attitudes. You know, Cindy Morgan's character, um, even though she's named Lacey Underall, is, is you know a strong female character. Um, she gives as good as she gets in the movie. Um, I think that, you know, if you look at something like Animal House, that's a far more problematic film um, than Caddyshack is today. Um, you know, the whole scene with, with Tom Hulse and the underage girl and, and sort of, you know, the devil angel thing on his, yeah. on his shoulders. Uh, that's, I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty creepy. Um, to watch now with our sensibilities, you know, now that they've changed, but it's, you know, it's just, I don't know. I, I think it's, the movie's a real time capsule of its moment, you know, a moment when Saturday night live was really in its, its fullest bloom, um, you know, and, and, and comedy was really, um, it had, it wasn't just Saturday night live, but like, you know, even standups like, Andy Kaufman or Steve Martin, or, you know, it just felt like there was a, something new in the air that, um, that was, that was changing. And I, I don't know, that time really, really speaks to me in a way. Mm. Yeah. It's, I think with any, with any movie from, a, you know, a, a different time, you have to kind of view it in the context of, right. of that, of that time period. And, you know, and for what it's worth, a lot of the, you know, the lines like, um, you know, that wouldn't stand up today are not really spoken by the most likable characters. Right. Ted Knight telling the the joke in in the uh, uh, in the locker room and, uh, you know, Spalding talking about, you know, getting where, he, you know, he says, I got I got it from a Negro when he's talking about right, the, the marijuana, the yeah. weed. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think at least it, it's got that like these characters that you're supposed to. Not yeah, there's like, a knowingness yeah. to the offensiveness. You know what I mean? It's like it's it, the people who wrote that weren't they were aware of of just how offensive they were being and they they're sort of in on the joke rather than being out of touch. Yeah. Yeah. So, um one last question. This is this is um kind of what we do on Ruined Childhoods is we take a look at these movies and we we say, you know, because everything is being rebooted or getting a, a sequel or some prequel about a side char side character um, these days, 
we look at these movies and see, all right, like, what do you, what do you do now with them? If, if you're, you know, if, if it's going to happen one way or the other, what's the, what would be the best way to resurrect Caddyshack in 2021? Yeah. I mean, I would, first of all, I would say don't, um, but you know, that aside, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I just read a couple of months ago um, that they're remaking Fletch um, with John Hamm in the Chevy Chase role. And, um, you know, I like John Hamm, but my heart kind of sunk. You know what I mean? That's a movie that I, I can quote even more so than Caddyshack. And, and to me, that's like, you know, as good as comedy gets. It's certainly peak Chevy. Um and that just sort of broke my heart that they were remaking that movie. And it's not a remake. It's like a, of a different Fletch book, but still. Yeah. Uh, but, the, you know, if you were going to do Caddyshack today, I mean, I think it's, you know, what, what the movie's satirizing is certainly still valid, you know, like the 1% versus, you know, the middle class. I mean, that's certainly still on everyone's mind. And I think that it's, you know, a right place to, to, to make, you know, satire out of. But, um, I, you know, I... I wonder how, if anyone would greenlight that movie, you know what I mean? I, I don't know who would play, you know, I could see Jason Sudeikis maybe as Ty Webb, you know what I mean? I, I could, mm. I could, you know, there's some people I can <laughs> maybe see in Larry David maybe as like, as, as, as Ted Knight I, or, or Rodney. I mean, I think I'll, you could yeah. have fun with either, either way. Um, yeah. You know, I can, I can certainly see it, but um, I just, I don't, I think it would be a bad idea. What do you think? Well, um, I think where I see it most is as, as a series, um, you know, like HBO max is producing some great comedy hacks, um, right. most, most recently and notably. Um, but you know, a lot of these streaming services and cable networks that really don't have, we don't have, have the boundaries anymore. I don't know that I would remake it though. I think I would, I think I would set it at Bushwood. I would maybe even call it Bushwood and make it kind of like an American Downton Abbey yeah. where you've got the you've you've got these rich people who are so rich that they don't realize how ridiculous they are you've got the caddies you could focus more on the stories of the caddies and uh, you know have that love triangle right, <laughs> um right. that that doesn't really happen in the original um you know you could have the caddy tournament and i think also you could you could set you could do each season at a different time period like why not yeah. let's bushwood 1964 right Right. Let's see it. I mean, we could see a younger Judge Smales. I wouldn't right. I wouldn't I definitely wouldn't set it around the time of Caddyshack because you're not going to have another like you might have a younger actor step in and play a younger Ty Webb. Yeah. And have Ty Webb's father, who's referenced by Judge yeah, Smales yeah. as a character. Um, and then just, origin story. I love it. Yeah. I mean, or just create new characters, but yeah, like you said, you know, kind of look at how these th these class issues, this class struggle, is is consistent. That's interesting over over the years. Yeah, I like that. So cool. Yeah, I'm <laughs> nice. in. Yeah, sure. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I will. I'll get the pitch into okay. the powers that be. Sure. Uh, I don't know. We always just refer to it. We say if Hollywood is making this, Hollywood is one just kind of yeah, big, right. 
omniscient figure. So um, it, thank you again for uh, for coming on and talking Caddyshack. And um, where 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 can our listeners go to to read your stuff? Other, of course, the book Caddyshack. Yeah. Uh, the Caddyshack, Cinderella, yeah, making Cinderella up a Hollywood story. Cinderella story is available um, in paperback and hardcover. Um, but I, uh, I, you know, I write for a lot of different places, um, and uh, you know, Esquire, Sports Illustrated, a bunch of bunch of different places. So, um, if you want to see what I'm up to, you can check out my Twitter feed um, at Chris Nashawati. Thank you so much, Chris, and uh, until we, till we meet again, be the ball. Dan, that was really awesome. Thank you so much for getting that going with uh, with Chris. And Chris, if you're listening, thank you so much. I really wish that I could have been part of that. That was awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I know with social media, it has definitely brought a lot of problems. But one uh, one of the best things about it is that, you know, it's like if you you can you could reach out to someone and yeah. say like hey do you do you can can you answer a question and you know we've um you know it's been been really nice to have you know um to be able to to do that yeah. so yeah uh, and and you know chris i'm sorry that you uh don't have the fondness for caddyshack <laughs> too that maybe we do like we said it's something that we grew up with um it's something that played over and over again on HBO, probably Comedy Central at some point or the Comedy Channel, whatever it was at yeah. that time. And, uh, you know, I to each their own. <laughs> and I'm sure we're, that there's we're some... definitely in the minority on that. Yeah. one. Oh, I, I hear you completely. But not a silent minority. Yeah. No, 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 no. So, uh, Dan, you mentioned your uh, your thoughts for bringing this back. And uh, I mean, yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you know, I was, I was just like just thinking about it and thinking about how like you know the the themes of uh, you know class class struggle and and conflict and wealth versus I mean freaking like wealthy people are launching themselves into space in giant space dicks. So like I I feel like it's it's just it's a theme that could always be covered. And I think that in the form of a series, you have the right, you know, you can balance it out better and you could actually tell the stories of of the caddies and right. their lives. And yeah, so and it just it like thinking about it reminded me of Downton Abbey. Um one thing before we we get to your okay. what you're gonna do, I, um, I did not want to neglect the the movie Who's Your Caddy, okay, which is kind of a loose remake of. Was that where you were going? I it's in it's in my notes. Yes. Oh, okay. Then I will I will say no more. Oh no no no, that's okay. Let's talk about Who's Your Caddy for a second from 2007, uh, starring Big Boy of Outcast, and yeah, this is very much a you know your typical. I uh, very it's very similar I guess more in tone to Caddyshack too just because there's a land dispute involved um even though the the Bushwood low income apartments weren't on the grounds of the golf course it was still part of the community so yeah it's this whole thing about he purchases property that's on the land of one of the holes and bribes the country club I'm reading this part from uh, from Wikipedia, uh, bribes him for a membership in exchange for his land. 
So, yeah. I don't know how much that has to do with caddies other than the fact that it's a golf course movie. It's mu- it's more about the... Uh, I mean, it's not even a class conflict because he's he's, he's wealthy. wealthy so he's a hip hop it, star it's it well yeah it's more it's a culture clash yeah and it's race yes it's, yeah so um and it's jeffrey jones oh is it jeffrey the, jones jeffrey jones okay. is like yeah the, the head of the membership committee okay and it's just it's just it's very it, it's a it, it's it's a very racial um like play on right. Caddyshack. So I, I I I don't know if I would even go as far as to call it a remake, but if I was, I would say a very a loose remake. Yeah. Um I'm I actually have the Wikipedia page pulled up. It doesn't make any reference to it having any sort of influence, you know, as being like a uh, a nod to Caddyshack. But I mean, I'm, I'm sure, sure when it was released, that's kind of how it was Oh yeah. Um I'm wondering what the the tagline was this summer. It's the street versus the elite. I was trying to see if it was like, you know, caddy whack or something like that. I don't know. Um but no, my you know, I had a few thoughts about it. What are you laughing at? Caddy whack? Caddy caddy whack. I really I wish it had been. <laughs> oh man. So uh I had a few thoughts. Um you know, I really feel like there's room out there and I don't think that it should be called Caddyshack because I feel like what people hated so much about Caddyshack too is that it wasn't Caddyshack and it still had Ty, it still had Bushwood Country Club, but that's it. Like it was just called that because it was originally supposed to be more involved with the, you know, the creators and the minds behind the first, but really just kind of slipped off into its own thing. And I feel like it would have been better for itself if it was its own standalone golf club, like country club movie. Um, Similar to something like who's your caddy, because it's not like people talk. Well, I, I don't know if people are really talking about who's your caddy that much, but at least if people aren't going to like it, it's not because they have an emotional connection to any type of predecessor for that movie. And I feel like if there was a movie that was more true to what the story of Caddyshack was supposed to be, and maybe did focus on a Caddy storyline and, uh, you know, I don't maybe get out of the country club a little bit. I feel like we're in a place right now where I don't know. That's just, if we're doing a golf movie talking about country clubs, you're forced to talk about class differences and uh, it's been done a a thousand times. Not to say that the problem has gone away, but you know, then it's just Caddyshack all over again. And, but the thing is like, there's pro golf and you know, when we see movies like happy Gilmore, that's about the pro golf circuit you know, it works as a as a golf comedy without being compared to Caddyshack. Uh, it's, you know, if that took place in a country club, you were just going to hear people comparing it to something like Caddyshack. So, mm-hmm. yeah, do something on the pro golf circuit if we're going to do a golf movie. Um, you know, let's let's focus on the caddies if we want to, like, think about 
you know, a caddy storyline because a caddy storyline was never adequately ever done. I mean, it's barely there in Caddyshack. It's, you know, it's an, an afterthought, yeah, I mean, even though it's <laughs> how it started. As 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 we heard, uh, Brian Doyle Murray didn't seem too bothered when the well, caddies became less of the focus, and it was his his story. Right. So, yeah. but yeah, I I um I definitely would would like to see something more like that, and that's um I I I like that idea. That's definitely something that I was thinking about, and I although the idea to take it out of the country club is interesting and would you think would you set would you set yours like modern day yeah i think so yeah because the because yeah because the pro uh to actually yeah that makes a lot of sense and i mean i don't i guess like country clubs are kind of still a thing but i i don't know not that i necessarily travel in circles with people who would join country clubs but i'm like are they still a thing are there like people our age well that here's the thing dan you're a high school teacher. I'm in the arts. I'm in the creative industry. Uh, the circles that we run in aren't necessarily, you know, country club people. Um, no, well, that's what I'm saying. So I think I don't that know. when you get more into like finance, uh, and this is not saying that there's anything bad about people who are in finance, but I think that it's just maybe more popular for people who are, you know, just to see the thing is like, and, and this is where I, where I was going with another thought that I had, which oh. is that golf courses are a place where people do a lot of networking and, uh, a lot of schmoozing. And it's like, you're, you're spending a lot of time doing this sport that's very slow paced and that lends itself to a lot of chit chat where you don't have any other distractions. And so this other thought that I had, if we did want to take it a step further in the Bushwood, uh, you know, movies or whatever, is that, you know, let's say you do have the Bushwood low-income apartment complex and maybe it's spawned off into like a sport support center for like disadvantaged youth or whatever, and it's successful and the, you know, the aftermath of that 1988 golf game came to be that it is no longer a country club. Maybe it's a public golf course or something. And it's, you know, just a place, you know, that isn't necessarily, I don't know, uh, as, as popular, uh, you know, as a hangout spot, but, you know, let's say that the community has become a, a hub for tech companies and they want to have a place to do their networking and their schmoozing and they want to try to buy out the Bushwood property, you know, because of the, the land that it's on is, you know, lends itself to the golf course. Plus it does have the legacy of the golf course there. Um, so well, they want to, they want to, so you've got the, the, the quote unquote snobs are fighting to privatize it. Yeah. Again. Yeah. I, I don't oh, know. I don't, I don't know like if I reverse. necessarily agree with it, but I do think that that's what we're talking about is like, you know, to have a, a membership at a golf club is for a lot of people, a prime opportunity to do schmoozing or Dan, you do have a place like, I don't know if you're familiar with top golf, but it's essentially, 
It's it's kind of like the what uh, what Jack Hartunian turned. Is it like Top Gun? Is it like on an aircraft carrier? No, it's not as cool. But highway uh, to the danger zone. I was gonna say the the green zone. Like I don't. There's no like zone thing in uh, no. In I golf, just huh? want to so. But the thing is, like, Top Golf is this place where it's kind of taking a golf like driving range and making a like a sport out of it that's kind of like in the in the style of like frisbee golf where it's like you're taking ones but it's like you know you do these challenges and you see who can hit a certain target or get closest to a thing you know it's kind of like a jackie's wacky it's kind of like a jackie's wacky but it's like you know it's a place where people go and do like bonding trips and and i think about that because we have one out here just outside of portland and you have it's right it's right near nike so nike people probably go there we it's close to intel so intel people go there so it's like you know very much one of those like uh you know corporate bonding places that people go so yeah there's also that it doesn't necessarily have to be a country club but it still is something that's you know very much a you know, wear your your polo and your golf glove and, you know, it's not really so much of a uh, Dave and Buster's type atmosphere. Can you, you can't wear jeans? Oh, I'm sure you can. Can you wear jeans? <laughs> oh, I'm sure you can. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. So yeah, country clubs are, yeah, it's, that's not, not in my, uh, not in my realm. Yeah. These days. So, so. Uh, that's what I got. All right. Well, I feel like we've covered this. Yes. We, we, Caddyshack. <laughs> check. Um, yeah. Oh, how, how'd you like a fresca? All right. So, uh, well then, our our next episode is going to be kind of oh like- Oh my God, uh, I'm so excited. This is just going to be like a big super jam because we are taking on the body swap- films of the of the mid to late 80s i'm dan i'm so excited I, uh, so like, here's so i mentioned earlier that we we're recording this one way in advance of it's coming out by a few weeks that's because dan is about to go on a trip and we won't have opportunities to record so we're thinking like we have some extra time and dan's going to be on some airplanes and stuff and what there's no better kind of movie for an airplane than a body swap comedy from the 80s Come on. Oh, the the only question is, uh, will it be vice versa? Like father, like son, 18 again, dream a little dream or all of them? Yeah. All and, of them. and we're going to have some other movies in there that uh, aren't exactly body swap movies, body transformation movies, more like like uh, big, big and all of me. And, you know, it's like there's so many movies from this era where they're just like, you know, what if this person became this instead? And, you know, uh, we're, we're going to talk. Uh, I, I don't want to go any further because I, I could just start talking and we could record the whole episode right now if we needed to. <laughs> we could. But I want to okay. watch the movies. That's the thing. Yeah. 
No, we're going to we're going to check out these movies and encourage you to check them out. And if you've got a favorite body swap movie or if you belong to a country club or <laughs> it, whatever you want to share with us, email us at ruinedchildhoodspod at gmail.com. You can find us on uh, Instagram at ruinedchildhoodspod. Yeah, we've got a whole link tree. It's in the episode tree. description. And uh, yeah, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Rate and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever you listen to this on, uh, that really helps a lot. Um, uh, we are uh, apparently uh, ranking in in Apple Podcasts in the Bahamas. So uh, everybody out there, nice. thanks for listening. We really appreciate. Yeah, we uh, love you. the Bahamas. And if there's any, uh, if there's any movies that take place in any of the uh, places mentioned in Kokomo. Let us know that, uh, and we can cover them. But, uh, yeah. Dan, any any last thoughts? No. Every last thought has been poured out of me into this episode. The the tank is dry. Well, then, as you uh, ride along on a, uh, a golf cart that's replacing the caddies, I wish you a good journey. Good journey. Just got a with the 